Hey, church, one of the things that we have talked about for years is we declare the gospel and we also demonstrate the gospel. And you guys have been doing an awesome job demonstrating the gospel during the crazy COVID days on so many different levels. But all right, this is one we all got to jump on board with, all right? This is going to be almost 20 schools in four different counties, all right? And there's an on-ramp for everybody, all right? There's 1,500 to 2,000 backpacks. There's a different technology we're going to try to provide, teacher appreciation, too much stuff for me to talk about. But here's what I want you to do, all right? Before you before the day's over, go to this website right here, buildmorechurch.com schools. And it will, have, uh, it will have all the information. Uh, and let me just challenge you. It's a tough time for a lot of people. And one of the things we do is we want to particularly serve the underserved in our communities. Uh, but uh, a lot of you, a lot of you watching right here, I mean, God has blessed you, not just blessed you during the COVID days in a normal way, but actually just gone over and above what you could have ever expected. So let me challenge you. If God's blessed you during these difficult days for a lot of other people, man, step up to the plate. All right. You always do this, but I'm going to challenge you to do it again. All right. There's a lot of different things people can do a little bit, but some of you have been blessed and you could provide you could provide hundred. You could provide two hundred backpacks just just you alone. All right. So uh, make it a family affair where your kids see that you know what we're generous with other people. Why? Because God has been generous with us. We serve people. Why? Because God has served us in the gospel. Great discipling of your kids, as well. All right. With that being said, go ahead and uh, take your Bibles uh, wherever you are, uh, and thanks for tuning in. All right, make sure you take advantage of all the chat features and comment features. Uh, we got folks ready to answer your questions if you have that. But we're in a series called The Gospel Changes Everything, and it's out of the book of Philippians, and we are going to jump into Philippians chapter 4 uh, right now. And so uh, I got a little, uh, a little prop here with me, and um, you know, when I, when I look at this glass and you kind of go, I always wanted to do that, all right? It's like, doesn't that sound good? I mean, that, that's pure. It's, uh, it's almost peaceful, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's almost harmonic. It's like, man, that just, that sounds awesome. And when relationships are like that, you're like, man, it's great. Marriage is great. Spouse and I are getting along. Kids are amazing. My friends are doing great. We just get along. It's just clicking right now. You won't believe our work group at work. It's even getting along. Awesome. But then what happens? What happens is like, boom, that happens. You're like, whoa. Something happens and it all breaks loose. You're like, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe the way that you acted. And all of a sudden you went from all that harmony and it's just, it's, it's what? It's, what's the word? It's shattered. It's just shattered. You're asking, I mean, how, is, how does it come back again? There's pieces everywhere. How do I ever put those relationships back together again? And the overflow of that, we hear all the time. It's, it's, it overflows in things like, you know what? I would look more forward to holiday dinners if, if I could just get over what they did to me. You know what, uh, I hadn't t we used to spend a lot of time together, but you know, something happened and I hadn't talked to him in years. You think I can ever actually forgive that? There's no way, we hear it, we hear it and say it all the time. Something happens, whether it be marriage, whether it be friends, whether it be kids, whatever it is, it gets shattered and the question is, what in the world can we do about it? Now whether you know it or not, Philippians chapter four deals with that exact subject. So for three chapters, he has done some 
amazing theology about the whole idea of the gospel changing everything. He starts the whole book off talking about your saints. That is that if you know Jesus, you are like in, you're in Christ, all right? You're in Christ. Positionally, you're holy. Positionally, you're righteous. When God looks at you, he sees the resume of what Jesus has done. You go on to chapter two and it talks about an amazing savior who humbled himself even to the point of death. Then you go to chapter three and a couple weeks ago, Clayton was here and it's like, man, because of what Jesus has done, all right, when we, when we mess up, all right, we can fess up and then we can get up. Why? Because we're not condemned. And then last week, Jeremy and Tyler, they talked about just the citizenship we have in heaven. So he has been laying down theology for three chapters. And then you get to chapter four and it's all about, you know what, we got to practice what we've just talked about. And here's kind of what happens. We don't know all that goes on here, but there's two ladies in the Philippian church and they're at odds with each other. We don't know the whole idea of the disagreement. Something is going on and Paul begins to challenge them. Okay, listen, you put all that theology, you put that in place in reconciling with each other. And even when I say resolving personal conflict, two good things happen or two things happen, one good, one bad. The good thing is that for some of you, somebody immediately came onto the screen of your mind. Right off the bat, you thought of a person, you thought of an ex-spouse, you thought of a current boss, you thought of a former friend, you thought of that person immediately, you thought of an incident that happened, and that's good. But also you might have put your, kind of put your resistance up and it's like, I mean, I'm not gonna do it, you almost wanna turn it off. And just pray right now. If you're in your connect group or if you're by yourself, whatever, just right now, just say, God, would you help me to love that person like you love that person? God, would you help me to be open to what you wanna do in my life so that you would honor yourself and restore the joy back to me that I so desperately want and that I so desperately need? And so let me read the text. We're gonna be, again, Philippians 4. I'm gonna read the first five verses and then we're gonna jump in there and say, all right, what's, what's going on and how does this apply to me and how do I deal with that person that God's already brought up? So five quick verses. Here's verse one. It says, therefore, my brothers, remember, therefore, he's looking back at all the stuff that he's talked about. Therefore, my brothers, this is for believers. This is for professing Christ followers specifically. Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. See, and he loves his church. He loves his church. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, what does stand firm mean? Well, he's about to tell us. He said, I entreat Yodia to get a new name. Just kidding. All right, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, and there's a key phrase that I highlighted, to agree in the Lord. So you've got two ladies here, two leaders in the church. Something has gone on. And if you remember back then, they would stand in front of the church and they would read it out loud. All right, so he's like calling it out. He'd be reading this whole thing. Uh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul and they're reading it. And then like on the front row over here and on the third row over here, you got Yodi over here and Syntyche over here. And it's like, listen, I'm calling you out. So it's, it's very bold, but entreat is very gentle as well. It's like, I'm urging you, I'm begging you. Verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know exactly who that is. True companion, some scholars say, well, that's a person's name. And other people just say, well, it's a description. We don't really know, but it's a third party that he's saying, man, come alongside and help me. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with 
Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers, whose names are in the book of life. Again, these are not... These are not immature believers. These are mature believers. They love Jesus. They work hard for the gospel. And yet even mature believers at times can get like this, get at odds with each other. And so verse four, not unrelated, all right? Because when you have conflict with people, oftentimes the joy just goes out the door. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then verse five says, let your reasonableness, great word. It means not unnecessarily rigid. The ability to actually give some grace to other people. And it says, let that be known to everyone. Right off the bat, is that something that somebody would say about you? I mean, she is a reasonable, gracious, forgiving person. And why would we do that? And it says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. So again, uh, the context is this. You got two ladies in the church who are leaders who have a disagreement. Again, we don't know the nature of uh, the disagreement, but because they were leaders, they probably, because of that disagreement, you had some people taking sides, you had some ripple effect going on. And you know, I think Yodi is right. No, I think Syntyche is right. Well, you, you ought to pray more. And all this, it starts to boil up. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it. And what we need to remember is this, since you can't avoid relational conflict, we better know how we can honor the Lord in it. And so as we walk through this, I'm just gonna, there's a ton of stuff in the Bible about relational conflict. And so I want to try to be precise. There's a ton from Matthew 18 to almost every single epistle has a very relational section after it deals with the doctrinal section. But when you look just at this text, what you, what you typically find and what you find in relational conflict are two extremes. They're two ditches that people tend to drive into that we want to recognize and then avoid. Here's the first one right here. Here's one ditch we want to avoid, and that is the avoider. When it comes to relational conflict, the avoider is simply someone who anytime relational conflict comes up, they remove themselves from the situation. It can be a church, it can be a job, it can be a marriage. And what happens is after a while, it becomes a pattern so that they just go from church to church to church to church, sometimes marriage to marriage to marriage, friend group to friend group to friend group, job to job to job, all that stuff. And what they find out eventually is that sin is the native language of every single zip code. You cannot avoid clashes with people by just staying on the move. When you try to look for the perfect marriage or the perfect job or the perfect church where nobody ever offends you, nobody disappoints you, I mean, you might as well try to find Bigfoot riding the Loch Ness Monster. It's a myth, okay? It's not going to happen. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect spouse. There is no perfect friend group. And so what happens is if you and I are the avoider, we're like what we just call tumbleweed Christians, all right? Uh, and I'm from Texas and tumbleweed's big out there. Tumbleweed is basically a bunch of dead sticks that have come together and kind of a, should have had a picture for you, but basically come together and sort of kind of a cotton ball looking thing. And you get out in West Texas where I did some schooling, it will just, the wind will blow and these tumbleweeds will just start tumbling down the road, going from place to place to place. No roots, why? Because they do not stay long enough in any one place. On the other extreme, I would say maybe a little more prevalent in our culture today would be the attacker. The attacker. The attacker is more interested in winning the conflict than preserving the relationship. 
the attacker almost goes out looking to get ticked off. This is the bully. This is the gossip. This is the grudge holder. This is the keyboard sniper. This is the Bible thumper who uses the Bible as a club. That's who this is. They don't want to just take you on, all right? They want to take you down. Every disagreement, every conflict has to be, in their mind, it is a win-lose proposition. And they are intent, I'm going to win this. It's interesting that Paul actually doesn't, he doesn't avoid the whole thing, but he does deal with it. He's not attacking, he's saying, I entreat you, I love you, you're my joy, you're my crown. He's even saying, listen, you all don't have to be BFFs, okay? You don't have to do that, but you have to agree in the Lord. And so the question on the floor uh, today would be, how does the Christ follower go about conflict resolution, particularly with another, with another Christ follower? How does that happen? You're a Christ follower. Uh, you're like, you know what? I knew Jesus. He has saved me. How do you deal with conflict how do you at least get resolve? How do you get some kind of resolve, on, at least on your part? You can't, short of heaven, you're not going to have resolution or reconciliation with every single person you have conflict with. The Bible says, as far as it is with you, be at peace with all men. So, what we can say is, have I done what I'm supposed to do and what God wants me to do for the honor of His name and for the health of my soul? All right, so here's the first thing. For how do I have personal reconciliation? How do I have personal, how do I resolve personal conflict? First one's kind of uh, one that gets overlooked, but that is you got to overlook some minor things. Not every single point of disagreement has to blow up into some major conflict. Now the phrase there, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Apparently this was not some major sin or doctrinal issue. The reason you know that is the Apostle Paul has no qualms at all about calling out sin and saying, stop it and repent. He doesn't have any qualms about that. He did it in the other letters. And the Galatians is like, you are a bunch of fools, all right? Stop watering down the gospel. I mean, Corinthians, he's like, you guys are totally away from the gospel. He doesn't have any problem with that at all. But what he does here, he says, you all need to agree in the Lord. And so again, the idea is not about uniformity. There are some things, listen to me, there are some things that legitimate, true, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians can actually disagree on and neither of them necessarily be wrong. Here's where we get into trouble typically in churches. There's usually two camps, all right? They might even go toward the avoider and the attacker, but basically in church, you can typically have two camps. You've got one camp that thinks everything is a major issue, all right? Everything is. Everything is super clear cut. There is no gray. Everything has to be uh, right or wrong. You can kind of call that, I would call that kind of drifting toward legalism. The other side is the opposite problem. You might call that license. That is, there is no right and wrong. There is no clear black and white. There is none of that at all. But what gospel liberty says is where the Bible is clear, we will be clear. That's major. And there are some major things. But when the Bible is not clear, then my opinion is going to have some degree of humility. Where the Bible is clear, we will be bulldogmatic. We will hold on to it very tightly, unapologetically. We don't have to be jerks about it, but we will hold on to it without compromise where the Bible is clear, and the Bible is clear in a lot of places, all right? A lot of places. 
But where the Bible is not clear, there needs to be some degree, you can still have a strong opinion, but have some sense of humility that, you know what, I might be a little bit off in my opinion about this unclear area that the Bible talks about. People say, there are no unclear, there are some unclear areas, brother. There are. I mean, I can just take a few. There's some areas that good, Jesus-loving people can disagree on. I mean, for example, uh, is it a major area that uh, Jesus is coming back? Yeah, it's a major area. Absolutely. It's talked about more than the first coming is the second coming is talked about. So it's basic doctrinal orthodoxy to say, you know what, Jesus Christ is coming again. But, and so that's a major deal. You can kind of fight over that. You can put your foot in the ground. It's like, this is going to happen and this has to be the case if you and I are even going to have, you know, too much fellowship together. But to say, all right, this is exactly how the event calendar is going to go along on Jesus' return that could be looked at in several different ways. So, uh, for example, everybody put, they'll put up these charts and go, this is all the event stuff, this is how Jesus is coming back. You know what, I, I have some thoughts about that. I have some beliefs about that. I've studied it and I come down, if you're kind of a, a, a whatever, theologian person, you're thinking, I like all those terms. You know, I would be what you call premillennial. That's the way I am. That's where I think the clear-cut reading of the Bible says. But if, if you're not that when it comes to how all the events unfold at the end of time, that's fine. That's fine. You know why? Because I might be wrong, and you might be wrong. And you can plate that same thing into the effect from everything from soteriology about, well, what about the free will of man and the, uh, and the sovereignty of God? I mean, people have been going at that, and they both can love Jesus at the same time, and it's okay to have the opinions. Just don't make your opinion somebody else's burdens. Um, verse five says, reasonableness, let your reasonableness be known to all men. It means, you know what? I'm, I'm again, I can overlook faults when I can't, when, I can overlook faults at times. Proverbs 19:11 says it is the glory of man to overlook an offense. A lot of people watching, you're married. And I would say for 99% of our marriages, just this one thing could revolutionize just the joy of your marriage. Just the fact that, you know what, I'm going to actually give my spouse the benefit of the doubt, that she didn't really mean what she said. He didn't really mean uh, to hurt me like that. He didn't, those words, he didn't, he's, she's had a bad day, all right? He's got a track record where I know that's not what he thought, so you know what, I'm just gonna give grace at this time and we're gonna, we're gonna move on. You know how much that would do just for our marriages and our churches? So sometimes it's just overlooking some minor offenses. Second thing we can do is own your part. Own your part. Now notice Paul does not take sides in here. He doesn't take sides, and the reason he doesn't take sides is probably because he knows there's two sides. There are two, 99% of the time, there are two sides to every story. There's an occasional one that it's 100% and 0%. But almost every one I've seen, almost, it's like, you know what? There's something, there's two perspectives because the old saying goes, you know what? There's, there's his story, there's her story, and then there's the truth. Why? Because you and I bring in, I think what, uh, I guess psychiatrists talk about the, the schema. That is your perspective, okay? So like if I'm looking right through here, all I can see is I'm looking through this little hole and this little hole, this is my perspective. And because I'm looking through my little perspective, I am blind and oftentimes ignorant to all the other perspectives. And you got at some point realize, you know what, we all bring into 
arguments we all bring into this some idea of this is my experience, this is my background, this is the way that I see stuff. And when we do this, you know, it can be very easy. Some adult arguments sound like we're back on the third grade playground, correct? Okay, you said that, no, you said that, no, you, you said this. Can you imagine how embarrassing if there was like a tape recorder of all the arguments you've ever had in some of the relationships? No, you, you started it. No, you started no, it. Here's a great, here's what would be awesome that would make your home at least go very well. I would say most of us would agree that sometime in the last 12 months, sometime in the last 12 months, 18 months, you have actually done something, said something that you knew uh, actually injured somebody. All right, I would think that would be safe. And if God brings it up on your mind, what I would do is I would go and then here's, 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 a, great, uh, here, here's a great hint. Go up to that person and basically this is, I'm not accusing you of anything. I am not asking you for anything except for your forgiveness. Can you imagine just what that would do? You go into work tomorrow and somebody who you know knows you did something to them, just say, listen, and you're like, maybe it was a lot their fault. Own your part. It's like it's just 20%. Then own your 20%. And don't have to bring up their 80%. Just say for your 20%, you don't owe me anything. I'm just asking you if you would forgive me for, and you fill in the blank. You're like, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Well, because he says, you know what? Do this in the Lord. So really the main thing we want to get to and kind of end with is this. When it comes to conflict resolution, when it comes to personal conflict resolution, is you want to orient all this stuff around the, the gospel. Gospel changes everything, including this. It's got to be in the text, so let's look at it in the text, because orient means to focus and revolve it around. So verse 2 says, you agree in the Lord. Verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. Now, that's not a reference to the second coming. That's a reference to his presence being right there. In other words, what Paul tells them is he calls these ladies to see the issue through the lens of the gospel. Not what's best for you, not your hurt feelings. He says, ask the question, what is best for the gospel in my city? What honors God more? You know, if I'm trying, if, if at least if I'm trying to restore, a lot of times people say, I have a right. I have, I have, I have a right. I got these rights. I mean, thank God that Jesus laid his rights down. And then we're saying that we follow that Savior who laid his rights down. I mean, he didn't say, you know what? I got rights. You guys offended me. I got rights. No, what does it say? Chapter 2 simply says this. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because it's illogical when people sit there and go, you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower. And I don't know a lot about church, but... You know, last I checked, it, your Savior died on a tree for you, correct? And so you're holding a grudge and you're a big gossip and you're putting people down and you won't forgive. Now, that just doesn't seem like it goes together. It's not logical at all. It's kind of like a person saying, you know what, I, I love coffee. I love coffee. I just hate the smell of coffee and I hate the taste of coffee. You know what? Bottom line is you don't love coffee. That same logic is like, well, I love Jesus and I love the fact that he forgave me and was patient with me and and but I don't want to do that to somebody else. That's, they're going to say that's not logical. And um, anyway, when you, when you look at this, the, 
Can you imagine the conversations with some, maybe some neighbors or coworkers that know that? It's like, okay, yeah, they're saying that the God of the universe humbled himself, lived the life they were supposed to live, died in humiliation on a tree, got spit at, got a crown of thorns put on his head, got put in a borrowed tomb, and yeah, he rose from the grave, and then he said, you know what, I'm gonna send the Spirit of God to indwell you so that you can live a life worthy of the gospel and you're adopted and sanctified and righteous, uh, but, they're, not, but they're, they're holding a grudge against you know, Scooter at the, at, the, at the office. They're like, that, that does not make sense. There's a guy named Leslie Newbegin who was a missionary, and I think he was the one that termed the way people look at the way you and I treat each other is called a gospel hermeneutic gospel hermeneutic, hermeneutics is basically a fancy seminary word that is the idea of interpreting the Bible. How do, it's the art and science of biblical interpretation. That's hermeneutics, okay? And what Newbigin was saying is this, is you know what? People interpret what God is like oftentimes by the way that you and I actually deal with conflict resolution. You're like, I don't want to deal with it. We deal with it. Why do we deal with it? We deal with it for the honor of the Lord, our testimony, I mean, one of the things that's super clear is, uh, you know, a lot of us don't live in these big towns. You can kind of hide in the Houstons and the Dallases and like never even see those people again. Man, but here in Western North Carolina, where a lot of you are watching from, you run into people and they see you and it's, we hadn't talked to them in 20 years. That is not honor the Lord. And so it, number one, it, it, it brings honor to the Lord when we try to reconcile, when we try to restore that, when we at least do what we're supposed to do. And then number two, people who hold grudges, people who continually gossip about people, man, they don't have any joy. You ever seen anybody who's like super gossipy, grudge-filled, keyboard warrior, any of those people, would you describe them, man, she is so joyful? No. So here's uh, kind of the challenge is again, you can't restore all the relationships, but you can do what we're supposed to do. So for some of us, some action points, um, some of us, maybe you need to forgive. That can be a private thing right there where you're sitting. It's like, God, ah, you know what? Because you've forgiven me. And we've taught on this 15 times. We teach on it probably once a year at least. And it's forgiveness. It's not enabling. It's not risking. It's not putting yourself in harm's way. What it is, it's a decision for you to release them from the debt they owe you. They don't owe me that anymore. If it happens, great. You'll be in a position and a posture to receive it. But they don't have to do that anymore. They don't owe me that apology. That's forgiving. Forgiving is great. It's great for your own soul. It's great for the glory of God. Uh, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Just ask for forgiveness. You're like, that's so humbling. Yeah, it is. It is. Remember what we learned though is like, uh, what did the half brother of Jesus said? Say he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want to figure out how do you get grace poured on your marriage? How do you get grace poured on your life? I promise you, if you will humble yourself, then guess what? Grace will flow into your house like a river. And so part of it is this, I'm gonna humble myself, I'm gonna ask forgiveness. You know you've done something, you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe that's a phone call, maybe that's an email, maybe that's setting up a coffee or a meeting that you can go to and say, hey, and don't bring up what they did, just say, would you forgive me for this? Maybe you just need to look across the living room right now and, and just say, you know what, honey, would you please forgive me for, and you fill in the blank. Other people maybe just need to let somebody off the hook. They didn't, it's not that they sinned against you, they just didn't do it the way you would have preferred. All right, just roll it off, roll it off your shoulders. If it's a little more serious, roll it off to the Lord and say, Lord, this bugs me when they do this. It's not wrong, it just bugs me. And so would you help me to treat them with grace and mercy like you've treated me with grace and mercy? 
Maybe you just need to get a third party involved, just like here. Get a third party. Man, there's everything right. Get a marriage counselor, somebody that can come in. It's like, this is her side, this is his side. Well, then have a third party. Maybe it's a marriage counselor. Maybe it's your connect group teacher. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a pastor at your church. Third party oftentimes can bring great clarity. Point is this. What he's saying here is after three chapters all about the gospel, once you've tasted the grace of the gospel, then you are gonna be more apt to give grace. Once you've tasted the patience of the gospel towards you, we tend to be more patient with other people. Once you know that, you know what, I've received mercy, then guess what, I'm gonna show some mercy to somebody else. My disposition changes.